We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verse 20 through 36. This is to follow up on Resurrection Sunday, and we've been in the Gospel of John, and we're just going to continue from where we left off before Easter. There's things happening right now that none of us are enjoying, but we have to realize that God's with us in all things. And this little poem is one of my favorites. Listen to this. God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for today, rest from the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. And so it's my honor to uh, speak to you about the most important things of human existence today, how our victory as believers arises from Christ's victory on the cross. So today's message is a great follow-up from Easter Sunday, and it's a great lesson about how Christ has defeated our greatest enemy and foe. And our greatest enemy and foe is sin and death. Uh, In the scriptures, in the New Testament, uh, it talks about how we, how Christ and by virtue of Christ, us also have overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I'm going to talk to you today about victory, about peace, about freedom from um, different things that come against us. So I'm in John chapter 12. I'm going to read to you, and you'll see it up here on the screen, from the Passion Translation. The Passion Translation is a paraphrase, kind of like the message or the Living Bible. And sometimes a paraphrase is just great because you get a plain understanding of the Scripture in a way that we really appreciate. So the Passion Translation is what I'm going to be reading from on the purple screens as we go to John 12, starting in verse 20. It says this, Now there were a number of foreigners from among the nations who were worshipers at the feast. Now where we picked up from right before this, if you look in John chapter 12, was the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday into the city of Jerusalem. And the feast that's happening is the feast of Passover. Now Passover celebrated freedom from bondage, deliverance from Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, the final plague upon the Egyptians, they put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost and the angel of death passed over all who had the blood of the lamb. And this, of course, is a picture of the new covenant where by faith, by virtue of the cross of Calvary, we have the blood of Jesus over our life, over our soul, over everything that we are. And the second death, uh, punishment for sin, separation from God, hell, does not touch the believer because of what Christ has done on the cross as the, uh, the firstborn from the dead. The Passover feast also celebrated the deliverance of Israel physically from the land of Egypt as well as the actual destruction of their greatest enemy of the time who was Pharaoh and all Pharaoh's armies. And you're going to see the parallels between that today. 
So during this time, when Jesus enters on Palm Sunday, and then this might be Monday or Tuesday, we don't know, but this is a picture, I don't know if you can see it, but you can always look up pictures of, of the, the Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day, or Herod's temple. There's great pictures on the internet, models and pictures in the study Bibles, various things. But this giant temple complex, this picture isn't that good uh, given our lighting, but a quarter of the city was the giant uh, complex that had the temple itself and the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts and the treasury system and the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jews. They all met here and there were hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world that flocked to Jerusalem in the spring of every year. This was one of three feasts where people would come in from Galilee. They'd come up from Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a large Jewish community, from all over the Mediterranean basin from Mesopotamia, where the Jews had been in exile in Babylon. There were still Jews there. And they came in from all over. Now, another one of those feasts was uh, Pentecost. And th that would happen later, and there'd be all these different people at Pentecost. But that's a different feast. What they're celebrating is deliverance from bondage. They were eagerly awaiting the Messiah, the Anointed One who would give them a second deliverance from bondage. Now, they thought it would be freedom from foreign rule. But Jesus, as the Son of God, knew that sin and death needed to be defeated, not just Roman occupation of Israel. So the story goes on, and there were foreigners there at the feast who come to Philip. It says they went to Philip, who came from the village of Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked Philip, would you take us to see Jesus? We want to see him. So Philip went to find Andrew, and then they both went to inform Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Jesus is, is doing different things. This might have been right after he cleansed the temple, because you look over in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they talk about how he drove out the money changers and overturned tables. So they might have been stirred up about that. It could have been something else. But Jesus was spending time in the temple and around Jerusalem. And these foreigners want to see Jesus. We don't know anything more about these Greek-speaking people other than they want to see Jesus. We don't even know if Jesus actually talks to them. Because he could be included in what Jesus says next. Or possibly Jesus is just talking to the crowds or just his disciples or a combination. But this does tell us that the context is that there's these Greek-speaking people who want to see Jesus. So the context is that Jesus is influencing foreigners and the apostles will continue to do so after the resurrection of Jesus. Touching the lost and the least and the outcast and people of this sort. So in verse 23, it says that Jesus replied to them, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, your translation of the Bible might say that the hour has come, but it means that this is my moment. This is the time. Verse 24, let me make this clear. A single grain of wheat will never be more than a single grain of wheat unless it drops into the ground and dies. Because then it sprouts and produces a great harvest of wheat, all because one grain died. 
Let me remind you that in the Jewish mind, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's using a label spoken by the prophet Daniel of a conqueror who has a kingdom that will last forever. Now, what it means to be a son of man means I'm human, or a a daughter of woman means I'm a girl, you know, I'm a woman. But this title that Jesus is using comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So when Jesus says, now it's time for the son of man to be glorified, this is what the Bible reading people of Israel would have thought in their mind when he said that phrase. And continuing in Daniel, and the son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. I think what this is, is the Ancient of Days is God the Father, and the Son of Man is the God-Man, fully man, fully God, the Lord Jesus, the risen Nazarene, who's going to receive a kingdom. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus states that it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, you know, the disciples, they were waiting for this. They wanted the kingdom to be set up. You see this in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus, you know, they're like, okay, well, now that you're risen and he hasn't ascended yet, they're like, is the kingdom of Israel now? Is is this the time? when you're going to restore Israel to its rightful place. And at that time, he says, no, 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 there's, there's more work to be done. But they're thinking about the kingdom without end that will be set up. They interpreted this as an overthrow of human kingdoms. But Jesus wanted to overthrow the spiritual kingdom of darkness that had infected creation with sin and death. So think about this for a minute. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, one of the temptations was in Matthew 4, Luke 4, Satan uh, tells Jesus, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, if you'll just bow down and worship me for just this one moment, I'll just give you all the kingdoms to the earth. So what that would have been, would it would have been glory without the cross. It would have been a shortcut and it would have been sin. It would have been missing the mark of the Father's will for the Son to go to the cross to actually not conquer the human principalities and powers, but to conquer, as Ephesians 6 tells us, the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm, the dark realm. Uh, It's talking about Satan. So imagine this. If Jesus would have done that, what if Jesus would have lived a thousand years 2,000 years, 3,000 years, and just reigned over the whole earth and all the kings and kingdoms of this earth would have reported to him and carried out his administration. But if people still forever were subject to death and forever subject to sin and diseases and all those different things, that that wasn't the kingdom Jesus was trying to get. He's going to receive all the human administrations of this planet eventually, 
but it will be with people who are cleansed from within. People who have discovered that our victory rises out of his victory on the cross. And only one man could do that, and that man was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So the disciples and all of us before the resurrection, none of us could have imagined this because God had to reveal it through the person of Jesus. But Jesus certainly talked about it. The Old Testament predicted it. But they were thinking too small. They could not see the spiritual realm, and neither can we, apart from God's help. The crowds and disciples wanted Jesus to do their will, which was win a battle. But Jesus was prepared to die so that he could win a war that they didn't even see. Now think about that for a second. They were just thinking about a small thing, what they wanted. But he wanted to reconcile the Father with broken humanity so that we would be totally redeemed inside and out. And for Jesus, the pathway to that victory was death. So Jesus likens his life to a seed that has to die in order to give new life. And that's exactly what happened. The scriptural lesson is this. Life and new beginnings can arise from death as well as disappointments and limitations because Christ is the resurrection and the life. Now, you might be looking at outward circumstances that are happening right now, things that we don't like, this coronavirus that has plagued our land and economic closures and various things, but God is able to turn all things, uh, work them all together for our good, and he is working different things. We've, we've seen people make, make commitments to believe in the Lord during this time. We've seen people think about their life. We've seen people receive rest. We've seen people reach out to one another in amazing ways. So Jesus goes on and he says this in verse 25. The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. But the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. If you want to be my disciple, follow me and you will go where I am going. And if you truly follow me as my disciple, the Father will shower his blessing upon your life. Jesus is calling each and every one of us to be a servant of other people. That is the path of joy. That is the path of happiness. Now, he had a unique destiny to die on the cross. No one else replicates that. We're supposed to take up our own cross but our cross doesn't purchase the redemption of all humanity. It's just simply us. He purchases our redemption on his cross. And when we bear up our cross, it's just us being Christ-like. All we have to do is believe. But when we do believe, we follow Jesus as he serves other people. So maybe there's a way that you can serve other people during this present crisis by reaching out, encouraging somebody. There's many different ways. I heard someone once say that the thought systems of this world could be categorized like this, that Greek philosophers like Socrates, their motto for life was know yourself. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher, said, no, control yourself. That's the key that unlocks life. And others in our world that say, today say give yourself and that actually arises out of uh, some very good convictions 
But Jesus said to deny yourself. He said, if anyone would come after me, then he or she needs to de deny themselves and take up their cross every day and follow me. So Jesus had this conflict within himself. In verse 27 of John 12, he says, Even though I am torn within and my soul is in turmoil, I will not ask the Father to rescue me from this hour of trial. So note that there's genuine conflict within Jesus. He had a will. He didn't want to suffer just for suffering's sake. He had a choice, and yet he chose to do what the Father wanted for a reason. In Hebrews 12, we learn that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he died for us for the joy of having restored relationship with us. So there was a purpose behind his suffering. So he says, for I have come to fulfill my purpose, to offer myself to God. Verse 28, so Father, bring glory to your name. Then suddenly a booming voice was heard from the sky. And he says, this is the Father talking. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it through you again. Now, the audible voice of God startled the crowd standing nearby. Some thought it was only thunder, yet others said an angel has spoken to him. So this is one of three times, it's the third time that God the Father actually spoke uh, to a group of people around Jesus. The first time was at the baptism of Jesus when John the Baptist baptized him. The second time was when John, Peter, and James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee and Peter, were with Jesus at his transfiguration up on Mount Hermon, and Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. So there were two times, and this is what was said. The first time, the baptism in the Jordan River, Luke 3, verse 22. The scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Those are beautiful words. The second time, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and a voice came out of the cloud because Jesus is shining bright. There's a cloud around him. Moses and Elijah are there with the three disciples. And the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, it's funny because sometimes as believers, this is kind of like one of my little things that I talk about now and then, we get on this performance treadmill and we think like, what do I have to do for God? What works do I have to do? And in John chapter 6, Jesus said that the only work that you have to do is to actually believe on the one whom the Father has sent. And who's that one? Well, it's Jesus. All we have to do is listen to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and that's the actual work that we're called to do. Then in verse 30, sorry about that, everybody. Maybe we don't need to. John 12, 30 says this. Then Jesus told them, the voice you heard was not for my benefit, but for yours, to help you believe. From this moment on, everything in this world is about to change, for the ruler of this dark world will be overthrown. And I will do this when I am lifted up off the ground and when I draw the hearts of people to gather them to me. He said this to indicate that he would die by being lifted up on the cross. People from the crowd spoke up and said, die? 
How could the anointed one die? The word of God says that the anointed one will live with us forever. But you just said that the son of man must be lifted up from the earth. And who is this son of man anyway? Jesus replied, you will have the light shining with you for only a little while longer. It would have just been days that they had remaining before he went to the cross. While you still have me, walk in the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. For when you walk in the dark, you have no idea where you're going. So believe and cling to the light while I am with you so that you will become children of light. After this, Jesus then entered into the crowd and hid himself from them. So the key verse that I want to bring out to you that shows us that the victory of Jesus on the cross his sacrifice for us is actually our victory, is verse 31 that I already read to you. Let me show you in the Amplified Version. It says this. Now the judgment or crisis of this world is coming on. In other words, the sentence is now being passed on this world. Now the ruler, evil genius, prince of this world shall be cast out or expelled. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan, who before the cross event, before the Son of God gave his life to purchase all the sins of humanity, he just had free reign because Adam and Eve, that's what they did when they rebelled, is they fumbled the ball and Satan had been running with it ever since the Garden of Eden. Now, there's an interesting scripture given in John, 1 John 3, verse 8. It says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is John in 1 John 3, 8, saying the reason why Jesus appeared was so that he could destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are rebellion, sin, uh, death is the fruit. Of, of sin. And so all these different things Jesus wanted to conquer. And our life source is the cross. It's Calvary. It's the blood of Jesus. And so you have Paul in Galatians. It's just everywhere in the New Testament. Paul in Galatians saying, I've been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live is, is let me not try to paraphrase it. I'll actually uh, quote it to you and you'll get a blessing out of hearing it accurately. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the message is just repeated over and over and over in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 5, uh, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And what this means for the believer, get this, is that the devil actually now only has the amount of power in the life of the believer that we give him. The devil only has the amount of power in the life of the believer that we give him. And most of that power is derived by believers 
believing lies. Because Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. We actually have been given not only power but authority over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by the world, we mean the world system. That the world that's being talked about here, that he's cast out of this world, you could easily put parentheses in there and talk about the world system. And so it's my prayer for you today that you would know this deep experience of Christ reigning and living in your heart. And you know, if you haven't come to that crisis point, of receiving Christ into your life to be Lord and Savior, where you simply say, Lord, I make you Lord and Savior in my life. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose again from the dead, and I now receive you as Lord and Savior in my life. Come and clean me, make me whole. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't, if you haven't yielded to the Lord and said yes to him in, in that way in your heart, then the devil does have power in that person's life. But when we make a faith commitment, Jesus is like the landlord who comes in as the renter says, come on in and clean up this place. He gladly comes in and has more authority than anything, any pile of trash, any robbers that come against you. He's a powerful ally and he not only cleans up our life, he defends us, he's our advocate, and he just does everything that we need to heal us, to make us whole, and to make us holy. So let me pray for you briefly. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have given us victory. And I thank you, Lord, that we approach life not from a standpoint of every day waking up and thinking, I can't do this, I can't face this day, but we come to everything and we can confess your scriptures, which are true. We can confess from Philippians that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And greater is he, the spirit of Christ who's within me, than anything that's in the world and anything that's opposing our nation. So we pray for our nation and our county and our state and our city, and we pray that you would deliver us from this plague, this, uh, this virus, we might call it a plague, but deliver us from the coronavirus, deliver us from doubt, help us to have the truth out there about the medical situation, our health situation, and we pray, Lord, for our nation to get back to work, that people would be engaged in serving one another. We thank you that you give us callings and vocations, and we pray a blessing upon each one who's heard uh, this message today. So we praise you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said... Amen. Thank you.